Good morning, church. Thank you, Pastor Charlie. Happy to be with you all this morning. I have to say, um, I was a little worried earlier in the week that I wasn't going to make it up here. Lily has been sick. And don't worry, children's workers, she's been on antibiotics for a few days, so you're all fine. Um, but she was sick, and, and so I had to avoid her as best I could during the week. And so she would come to me with her puffy eyes and her runny nose, and she would say, Daddy, give me a kiss. <laughs> and I had to say, no, I can't do that. I'm preaching. So I had to sacrifice lily kisses for the good of the body of Christ. And so... So I did that uh, in my sermon preparation this week. And uh, the Lord has been faithful to me and the rest of our family in keeping us well. And I hope that he'll uh, keep me well for the next hour and a half of this sermon. So, no, let's, uh, let's dive in and let's uh, get right to the text. So if you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 17 this morning. So Hebrews 12. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we confess that we are a desperate, desperate people. And if we sit in these pews and listen, and I stand in this pulpit and preach under our own power, then these are just empty words being spoken, going one in one ear and out the other. We need your help. Send your spirit to help. To help me preach, to help the body listen, to sear your words in our hearts and minds that we might apply it to our lives. Give us encouragement from your word. Motivate us to serve you all the more. And we pray that all of this would be for the glory of the name of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Eric Little, about whom the movie Chariots of Fire was made, was a gold medal Olympian and later a missionary who died in service to the Lord. He has a famous quote that many of you have heard. He said, I believe God made me for a purpose. He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He didn't believe that the purpose for which God had made him and running were one in the same. He has a lesser known quote. After the Olympics, he said, It has been a wonderful experience to come to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. Well, the man knew what he was talking about. We see this imagery of faith as an athletic competition throughout Scripture, and we see it again here in Hebrews chapter 12. I like to try to summarize every sermon with one statement that I feel boils down the entire thing, and that athletic imagery is going to give me help here. And that statement for this passage is, run hard for the prize and don't grow weary. Run hard for the prize and don't grow weary. And the author of Hebrews here He seems to be writing to a church that is settling for less than it should and is losing her edge. They may be growing weary. Paul in Philippians 3, 13 and 14 says, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul here gives us this language of a runner in a race, working, straining, reaching, moving forward for the prize. But what is the prize? It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews here is encouraging this church, and he's using the same language 
that we see in Philippians. Look in verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before this, before us. How does he begin his encouragement? Well, think back to chapter 11, which Pastor Mark preached last time we were in Hebrews. And he went through many examples of these scriptural titans, believers before Christ who ran the race by faith. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look at that great cloud of witnesses. Look at all of those folks that we've just talked about. Look at how they ran the race and be encouraged by their testimony and let us also, like them, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Why? So that we can run and finish the race. He's encouraging them and us not to give up. To look at those who have come before, who faithfully finished the race so that we too, like them, can attain the prize of faith. But he's encouraging us to lay aside every weight and sin in order to help us finish the race. So lay aside every sin. Sure, sin is bad. The Bible's pretty clear on that. Don't sin. But he nuances this a bit by saying weight and sin. And for a runner... Extra weight is bad. Runners will often train with weight vest on to build up their endurance so that when they get into an actual race and they're not wearing that weight vest anymore, their body will perceive the lighter weight and will run harder and run faster. He's saying here, get rid of any weight, of anything that slows you down. Things that in and of themselves may not be sinful, can still slow you down in your race. We have incredible freedom in Christ, but Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, that while all things are lawful, not all things are helpful. So the rule of thumb for the Christian should not merely be, is this thing I'd like to do morally permissible? The rule of thumb should be, will this thing I'd like to do help me to serve God better? Will it help me to run the race with endurance and attain the prize? That's what we have to ask ourselves. If we stop at asking what is morally permissible, we end up a bunch of Pharisees. So that's the question that we have to ask. Take Tom Brady, for example. Tom Brady... Five-time Super Bowl champion quarterback for the New England Patriots. If you hate the Patriots, I'm sorry, just bear with me. Um, I'm not particularly a Patriots fan, so I'm with you. He is notoriously disciplined. And just one example here, he refuses to eat ice cream. Well, he refuses to eat real ice cream. He eats some abomination that he calls ice cream, but it's made out of avocados. No idea what that's all about. So in addition to the hours upon hours of training and practice and film study, Tom Brady feels like diet and nutrition will give him an added edge. You see, he has a goal to be the best possible NFL quarterback that he can be, and he's willing to cast aside any and all weight in pursuit of that goal. And that's the point. It's, it's not about football. His prize is more Super Bowl trophies or maybe his legacy as a quarterback. 
But our prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we, too, should cast off whatever slows us down in our pursuit of that goal. So if we truly understand the prize, we'd be like the man in the parable in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, who, when he discovers in a field a treasure of immeasurable worth, he sold everything to buy it, and he did so joyfully. That's the point. If we understand the prize for which we're striving, then the striving becomes worth it. So here's another illustration. I'm a meat eater, and I like all kinds of meat. Poultry, pork, beef, seafood. I was having a conversation with, with Miss Wendy yesterday about crawfish. It's meat, um, mud bugs, as we call them down where I'm from. So pretty much any meat, I'll eat it. If you came to me today and you said to me, for the next 30 days, you have to give up eating meat, I would be miserable. No burgers, no steaks, not even chicken for 30 days. You would see my countenance change. Uh, a couple days in, I'd get the meat sweats from withdrawal. Um, that's not a real thing, in case you're wondering. I'm just kidding. I would be upset about that, right? It would be a big sacrifice for me. But if you came to me and you said, I'm going to ask you to give up meat for 30 days, and if, if you are successful after that 30 days, I'm going to give you $1 billion. Folks, <laughs> I wouldn't hesitate. Bye-bye meat. The farmer's market would go out of business because I would turn vegan so fast. $1 billion. Okay, think about that for a second. When we look at the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and we understand that that means eternity in the presence of the Father with Jesus, and if we question the endurance to which we're called, we are like the person offered a billion dollars to give up meat for 30 days who says, I don't know, 30 days, that's kind of a long time. I mean, I got a reservation at the steakhouse next week, and I mean, a billion dollars, is that, how much is that really after taxes, right? If we understand what the prize truly is, we truly get it, then we can endure. We endure a momentary sacrifice for an eternal reward. Take the huge gap that you see between 30 days without meat and a billion dollars and expand that gap by infinity. And that is what we're called to sacrifice. That doesn't make enduring easy in the here and now, but it does make it worth it. But there's more encouragement here from the author of Hebrews. He doesn't stop after pointing us to the great cloud of witnesses. He doesn't stop after saying, hey, be like them, they endured. That's encouraging, but even more than that, he encourages, by, encourages us by pointing us to Jesus. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. As the founder of our faith, he's an example and we talked about this back in chapter 2. He's the trailblazer. He's the one who showed us how it's done. We see that he saw the joy or the prize set before him and he endured. He set the bar for us by enduring the cross. We are called to endure as he endured. <laughs> but that's an impossible bar 
for us to clear. We are sinners, and we're not capable of enduring the way Christ endured. But praise God, we don't have a Savior who went before us and said, now do what I did, and then left us to our own devices. He's not just the founder of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. He, being perfect, died as a sacrifice for our sins and perfected us. And we, just like the church being addressed here, are sinners. We are completely, utterly doomed on our own. There's no pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And for my type A's out there, there's no program that you can follow. There's no task list that you can check off. There's no rules that you can follow to save yourself. He's calling us to endure, but we're not capable of enduring. The finish line in the race might as well be on Mars. We can't get there, but that's why the author of Hebrews reminds us that he is also the perfecter of our faith. He endured for our faith. Any endurance to which we're called is an endurance that was already won by Christ. You hear that? We've, we've already won the prize. Now we endure until we attain it. Furthermore, the prize, that thing that we're running towards, it's Jesus himself. Sitting at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus isn't just the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the object of our faith. He himself is the prize. Remember in Philippians 1, in verse 21, Paul tells us that to die is gain. That's completely counterintuitive. But why does he say that? Because that means that we get to, quote, depart and be with Christ. And as Mark taught us from chapter 11, the Old Testament heroes, that great cloud of witnesses mentioned in chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus was the object of their faith too. Jude 5 tells us that it was Jesus who saved the Israelites out of Egypt. And 1 Corinthians 10, 3 ties Jesus to the rock from which life-giving water flowed to these very same Israelites. Jesus is the founder of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, and the object of our faith, but for them as well. He's our prize just as he was their prize. So the author of Hebrews calls his original audience and us to run hard, to run with endurance. And he uses this helpful imagery of athletic discipline to help us see what that looks like. Moving on. He calls us to not grow weary. Look in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We're again told to look to Christ, but this time so that we won't grow weary. He frames the suffering we endure as something that should actually encourage us. The race is hard and it can be wearisome, but look at how Christ endured and find encouragement. Again, the fact that Christ endured provides a great example, but because he endured, our faith will not be in vain. And he continues on in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. 
What he's saying is pretty simple. He's pointing out that the church to which the sermon is being preached has yet to experience martyrdom. No one's dying for their faith. Yet. He's saying to them, your struggles are your own sin, your own weight, and persecution, sure, but persecution short of death. Christ endured persecution and even death. This church hasn't quite endured that far. We know that they were persecuted. We see that in chapters 10 and in 13, but apparently not unto death. Death, of course, is the ultimate price that any one of us can pay for our faith. The author of Hebrews, and this is an interesting connection, the author of Hebrews has also rebuked this uh, church for their immaturity. It's implied at the beginning of this chapter, but he explicitly states it in chapter 5, verse 12, when he tells them that they need milk and not solid food. He's calling them babies. That's what he's saying. Maybe, and, and I'm just throwing this out there, maybe there's a connection between the real possibility of martyrdom and spiritual maturity. I'm not going to belabor that point, but I do find it interesting that in our country, most people claim to be Christians, even though there's actually like little evidence in the vast majority of our culture, the folks in our culture's lives, that they believe in Jesus. But also in our country, making the claim that you believe in Jesus doesn't carry with it any real risk of death yet. So moving on. We're to consider Christ and not grow weary. And in that, we're also be, uh, to be encouraged and not made weary by the discipline of the Lord. Look at verse 5 and 6, which paraphrases Proverbs uh, 3, verses 11 and 12. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. So in verse 1, we get the imagery of a disciplined athlete where the discipline is something active that the believer is called to do. And here, we get this imagery of discipline as that received by a child from a father. It's passive. It's something that's visited upon us. And continuing on at the same point in verses 7 and 8, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Look at this in verse 7. We are treated as sons and daughters would be implied here as well. Jesus is the son of God. That the term son or daughter would be used to describe us is staggering. Those of us in Christ are sons and daughters of God. We are Jesus' little brother and little sisters. Think about that for just a second. That's unbelievable. But how does the author of Hebrews relate that to discipline? In verse 8, he says, if we aren't disciplined, then we're illegitimate. We're not really sons and daughters without discipline. 
In verse 7, he asks rhetorically, What son is there whom his father does not discipline? The answer is, there isn't one. Discipline is evidence of that father-child relationship, and discipline is a mark of love. Parents, you've heard this from your kids before. You've heard, you can't tell me what to do. Hmm. What if we parented as if that were true? Imagine the scene. Imagine that after the service, (laughs) Jack is cheering over there. Imagine if after the service, we head home and I ask Jack, my nine-year-old, what do you like to eat for lunch? And Jack says, I would like a huge bowl of bluebell ice cream. None of this avocado mess. I'm not trying to be an NFL quarterback. I'd like that. I'd like a half a pound of Skittles and 14 sugar cubes. And I say, okay, no problem. You can have whatever your little heart desires. <laughs> and then imagine if Jack woke up on Monday morning and says, you know, school is boring. I don't want to go anymore. I want to stay home and I want to watch TV and I want to play video games. That sounds like a good day, doesn't it? Yeah, that's my point. And imagine if I say to him, well, you know, I can't, I can't tell you what to do. So sure, just stay home all day, watch TV, play video games. And then imagine if Jack, in the middle of one of his soccer games, hauled off and punched another kid in the face. And then when he gets a red card from the ref, I start arguing with the ref and saying, why are you penalizing him? He's just doing what he wants to do. He's expressing himself the way that he sees fit. If I were to let my son eat whatever he wants to eat, do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, would I be a good father? No, absolutely not. One of the most loving things I can do as a father is tell my son no when the thing that he wants to do is not what's best for him. I can tell him what to do. Why? Because I know better. That discipline demonstrates love by shaping him into a functional human being, among other things. He continues on in verses 9 and 10. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, God, for our good. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater here. He's saying, you respected discipline from your earthly father. Shouldn't you respect discipline from your heavenly father all the more? Discipline from your earthly fathers is good, but discipline from our heavenly fathers is for our ultimate good. Your earthly fathers did the best that they could as sinners, but God is perfect. So his discipline is perfect and for our good without fail. And this sounds really similar to an argument that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. He's making an argument about the fact that God provides for our needs and has our best interests at heart. In verse 9, he says, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? He's saying, even you bunch of sinners know how to do right by your children. How much more will God demonstrate His love? God loves His children and He disciplines us out of that love. Now, I recognize for some of you in the room, the father language that's used here can be difficult. (laughs) Some of you have fathers who gave you stones and serpents instead of bread and fish. I, I get that. I understand that thinking of God as a father is tainted with all kinds of baggage from neglect or abuse. But God is here. He's not going to abandon His children. His discipline is not abuse. It's love. God the Father is the ultimate Father. And even those of you who have had terrible fathers can imagine what it must have been like to have a good, loving, and attentive Father. And that's God. I want to also add that being told no, not getting what you want, that's not abuse. We live in a culture that in some ways believes there is no right or wrong outside of our own wants and our own desires. So our, our culture says, I define who I am, not God. And if I want to define life in such a way as to convenience my own selfish whims, no problem. If I want to define gender in such a way as to allow me avenues of sinful self-expression, no problem. Our culture shakes an angry fist at God and says, you can't tell me what to do. But he can. And not because he's some arbitrary rule maker who's trying to keep me down and keep me from being happy, but because he is a good, good father and he knows what's best for me. Discipline is what's best for me. And what is the purpose of discipline? Look at the end of verse 10. He disciplines us for our good. Sure, but how is that good for us? That we may share His holiness. This isn't just a temporary benefit. Discipline isn't just that we, be, that we may be more holy. It's that we may share in His holiness. This is the ultimate consummation of becoming more and more holy throughout our lifetimes by God's discipline. We enter through the process of becoming more holy to come out on the other end sanctified in glory. As Paul and Barnabas told the church in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Sharing in His holiness is entering into the kingdom of God. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline may not be pleasant, but it's leading to a greater good. The runner trains hard to win the race. Training is painful. (laughs) Tom Brady eats avocado ice cream to be a better quarterback and win more Super Bowls. Eating avocado ice cream is painful. But discipline 
lead somewhere. It's not for its own sake. When we discipline our children, oftentimes the purpose is twofold. One aim is to correct, but there's an aim of punishment as well, justice. I want to be very clear here. God's discipline of his sons and daughters is not punishment. That's not to say that we don't deserve punishment. We absolutely do. We're sinners. Sin deserves a penalty, and that penalty is death. But God's discipline on His sons and daughters is not punishment. We would never say that those who suffer and even die for their faith are being punished by God. Why? Because for the sons and daughters of God, that penalty has already been paid. The wrath of God deserved by us, fell on Christ. Punishment was meted out. It happened. The penalty for sin was absolutely paid, but it wasn't paid by us. And praise God. We're going to experience suffering. We're going to experience hardship. We're going to experience sacrifice, but it's discipline to make, meant to make us lean on Christ and meant to make us more holy. It's not meant to punish us. Not everyone preaches this message. Not everyone who would call themselves a believer gets this. We're told throughout Scripture, including in this passage that we've been reading today, that suffering and discipline are both normal for Christians. We have countless scriptural and historical examples of this. But some insist on preaching a message that says, if you obey God, He will bless you now. And the flip side of that, on the punishment angle, is if you don't obey God, He's not going to bless you now. He's going to punish you now. I saw that T.D. Jakes tweeted a couple of weeks ago. He said, If you obey God, you will never be broke a day in your life. Joel Osteen has a book called Your Best Life Now, and he's even taught that health is evidence of favor with God. Man, that is so tempting. In our flesh, we're tempted to think, if I don't get what I want, if I'm not financially prosperous, if I'm not healthy, I must be doing something wrong. God must be punishing me. The other side of the coin that these prosperity, false gospel teachers are peddling is that prosperity now means that God is blessing us. And this is tempting too. We look at those who have more stuff than us, are suffering less than us, and we covet. We envy. But what does Scripture say about this idea of your best life now? The passage we've been reading absolutely, unequivocally refutes that idea. We're running a hard-fought, difficult race now to attain the prize later. The clear consistent testimony of Scripture is that we're to sacrifice now to receive the reward later. John Piper said of this prosperity gospel, prosperity preaching tends to bring into this life greater expectation of prosperity than is intended for this life and only intended for the next life. Scripture is crystal clear that in the next life, the age to come, there will be no sickness, no poverty, no persecution, 
no calamity, no evil, no discouragement of any kind. In other words, the gospel does include health, wealth, and prosperity. It's coming, namely, in the age to come. The idea that we won't be sick, that we won't be poor, that we won't suffer, that's spot on. Absolutely, that's scriptural. The question is the timing. Scripture is clear that prosperity is a side benefit of attaining that prize for which we're racing. Prosperity is not guaranteed to the runners in the middle of the race, but it is guaranteed to those who finish the race. And teaching that says that the prize is yours now is absolutely not biblical. Our best life is not now. Our life now is one of enduring and sacrificing and suffering, running the race in order that our best life will be yet to come. Moving on, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. After having encouraged the people to keep running and to not grow weary, the author of Hebrews in verse 12 and 13 returns to this picture of the athlete. He's saying... uh, Go and see the trainer. Keep running. I know you're hurting. Keep your head up. Take care of yourself so that you can continue to run the race. Then in verse 14 and 15, he gets more literal and gives further commands. Strive for peace with everyone. Don't quarrel unnecessarily. That would slow you down in your race. Strive for holiness. We've already mentioned that holiness is from God. So what does it mean to strive for holiness? Christ has already won the prize for us. The holiness is already ours. So be holy. And this echoes what Paul said in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. And he he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We strive And God strives in us. Verse 15 tells us that we're to look out for one another. Believers should look out for each other and help each other in the race. Encourage each other as we strive towards the prize. Collectively, fight against bitterness and be encouraged in your plight together as those who are disciplined as sons and daughters of God. And then in Hebrews 16 Hebrews 12, uh, 16 and 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he, he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I don't think the author of Hebrews is here saying that Esau was sexually immoral. I think he's saying both don't be sexually immoral and also don't be unholy like Esau. You recall uh, the story from Genesis 25 verses 29 through 34. 
Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Big price. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Man, what a struggle. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau the bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is what Hebrews 12, 17 is referring to when it says that Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. So why Esau? Why is the author of Hebrews using Esau as an example here? Esau exemplifies one who did grow weary and who did grow faint-hearted and who did not run the race with endurance. Esau gave up the promises of God for a bowl of stew. You see, Esau is the counterexample of the great cloud of witnesses from chapter 11, and he's the counterexample of Christ. They endured to the end. Christ endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Esau couldn't see past hunger pangs to get his prize. Christ was holy. Esau was unholy. And the message here is be like Jesus, not like Esau. Esau bowed out of the race early. Endure like Christ all the way to the end. So in closing, brothers and sisters, fellow sons and daughters of God, Hebrews 12, 1-17 compels us to run hard for our prize and not grow weary. We're to cast off any weight which slows us down. Endure like those who came before us. Endure like Christ Himself. His endurance gives us our endurance. Don't grow weary. God, our good, good Father, disciplines us in love that we might endure all the way to the end. As Eric Little said, the race ends when God gives out the medals. Our medal, our prize, it's Jesus Himself. Are you hurting? Are you suffering? It's not punishment. Run hard. Don't grow weary. Given the prize before us, these are light and momentary afflictions. Keep your eye on the prize. Let's pray.